Well, welcome again. We're back in James chapter 3. We're going to finish off today, God willing. And I've called this, Sticks and Stones Will Break My Bones, But Your Words Will Kill Me. So, sticks and stones will break my bones, but your words will kill me. The power of our words is incredible. And so that's why it's really important that we apply what we're learning about how the Spirit can control our lives. So we're going to go through James chapter 3, 3 to 18, and James continues to teach us just how important it is to tame our tongues because of the damage that they can do. And it's, chapter 3, you can break into two sections. Verses 1 to 12 talk about how someone who wants to be a Bible teacher in the church should speak. And the last section in verses 13 to 18 talks about how someone who wants to be a Bible teacher in the church should live. And of course, it continues the theme of dead faith and living faith, and showing that a living faith will result in living words and living works. So let's do our memory verse. Ready? Big voices. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Awesome. So just going to jump in. We're going to read all of chapter 3. So James chapter 3, verses 1 to 18, it says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits into horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude or likeness of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. That's humility. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. 
This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I'm just going to pray. Father, speak to us today, I pray, through these words that you inspired James to write. These words are God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and instructing in righteousness. So we pray that we'll be instructed and we will be equipped to minister to the world around us and to each other. In Jesus' name, amen. So imagine you're in a car driving 110 k's an hour. Then suddenly the steering wheel pops off in your hand. All right. And you know that awful feeling you get in your heart when you're out of control. And so you're holding the steering wheel and the car is now doing its own thing. And you go through a fence off the road, you know, through a fence, and then you go into this crowded area where the, the Saturday markets are running and you slow down as you run over all these people. And you look back and you're really, really shaken because all you see is lots and lots of people who have been run over. Some of them are dead and some of them have been taken to hospital. It looks like an ISIS bomber has just blown itself up, you know. It's just, it's horrible. But I tell that story, or that little illustration, because that's the kind of damage that can be caused by our tongues. When we are not controlled by the Spirit of God, our tongues are a deadly weapon. And many people are left emotionally wounded, they feel dead on the inside, or they can be f- literally physically wounded or killed through self-harm, you know, through depression that leads to self-harm, the violence that results from unrestrained words, and suicide. Now, I know that in my lifetime, there's plenty of times I can think of when I've hurt people with my words. I've left them emotionally wounded and bleeding, especially the ones I love. Sometimes it's because of what I've said, or the way I've said it, or something I've not said. On the other hand, God has also, in his mercy, used me to bring life and healing to people, and often to those ones that I've wounded. (laughs) So, as I said, God is so merciful. Now, Proverbs 18.21 sums this up nicely. It says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. And a different translation, the New Living Translation says, The tongue can bring death or life. Those who love to talk will reap the consequences. So James is here instructing us on just how important it is to tame our tongues because of the huge damage they can do. And again, living faith produces living works and or living words. And then in the last section, verses 13 to 18, he creates this picture of heavenly wisdom and contrasts it with earthly wisdom, which is demonic, sensual, and earthly. 
to illustrate the difference between being controlled by the Holy Spirit and being controlled by our sinful nature in the way we talk and in the way we live. So let's start at verse 3. I'm just going to read verses 3 to 5 of James chapter 3. It says, Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. <laughs> now, who's ridden a horse before? Yeah, well, I'll tell you a story. I was riding this horse called Penny, and this is a few years ago, and some horses can just put their head down, shake their head, and the bridle comes off. And you're sitting on a horse holding the reins, and it's not connected to the horse anymore. And it really is not a good thing. I mean, this horse was a great horse. It was really learning to ride this horse with soft hands, and it was really responsive. And as soon as the bridle came off and the bit came out of its mouth, it changed. I mean, it wanted to be back with its friends, and it took off. And then I came off, went, went under a low-hanging branch. It literally took me under a low-hanging branch and said, See you later. You don't control me anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, it's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The change in the nature and character of the horse was incredible. Now, the same is true of the tongue. My sinful nature has a lot to say. Of course, nothing good. But it can't when it's reined in or controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, my tongue or my speech, like the horse when it's got the bridle on and the bit in its mouth, when under the control of the Holy Spirit who lives in me, become submissive, quiet, respectable, caring, truthful, empathetic, compassionate, pure, holy, godly, thankful, joyful, and loving. And these qualities just seem to come effortlessly. And it seems so natural. And it seems so, what, when we're controlled by the Holy Spirit, it seems so strange that my tongue can also be so vile, so selfish, and jealous, and envious, and lying, wrathful, and hateful, when it's no longer under the control of, or yielded to, or submitted to the Holy Spirit. So something I've really been thinking about in the last couple of weeks is consciously thinking, hang on, who's controlling me? Am I being controlled at this moment by the Holy Spirit or my sinful nature? And just being aware, becoming sensitive to who's controlling me? You know, you probably had this situation yourself where you're talking to someone and sharing the gospel or encouraging someone or counselling or comforting or whatever and then the very next person you talk to, the stuff that comes out of your mouth is hurtful, it could be rude, it could be envious, it could be jealous. And you think, how can that be? <laughs> well, James says in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, we'll get to this later, but it says, with it, the tongue, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude or likeness of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. So remember that last week we learnt that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, Galatians 2.20. And we said that we can apply it this way. It is no longer I who speak, but Christ who speaks through me. So what have we learnt so far? 
there's a few important points that we need to understand. The tongue is only small, but it has tremendous potential for both good and evil. That's verse 5. He who has control over his tongue has control over his whole body. And that's James chapter 3, verse 2. If the tongue is out of control, then the whole body is out of control. That's the application or the consequence of the tongue has control over his whole body. If you have control over your tongue, then you have control over your whole body. Likewise, if you don't have control over your tongue, then you don't have control over your whole body. And therefore, we must ask the question, at any moment, who is holding the reins of my mouth? Is it God or my sinful human nature? Remember Romans 8, 5 and 6? It tells us to make a choice. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Now verses 5 and 6 in James 3. See how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. So what does this look like? What does a tongue that is set on fire by hell look or sound like? Well, I've gone to Proverbs. It gives us a pretty good description. So Proverbs 26, 21 to 26. A quarrelsome person starts fights as easily as hot embers light charcoal or fire lights wood. So there's the first one there, quarreling and fighting. The next one is in verse 22. Rumors are dainty morsels. They sink deep into one's heart. So rumors, gossip, slander. The next one is verse 23. Smooth words may hide a wicked heart, just as a pretty glaze covers a clay pot. People may cover their hatred with pleasant words, but they're deceiving you. They pretend to be kind, but don't believe them. Their hearts are full of many evils. While their hatred may be concealed by trickery, their wrongdoing will be exposed in public. Now what's the word for someone like that? It starts with H. Hypocrite, yes, it's a hypocrite. Smooth words may hide a wicked heart. So, what can we do to keep our tongues from being ignited by the flames of hell? Well, John Corson says, When you hear gossip, pray. To keep your tongue busy, lest you join in the hellish discussion. If I listen to gossip, to put-downs, I am actually an accomplice in that fire ignited by hell. But if I refuse to listen and pray instead, the water of the Spirit douses the fire of hell and the conversation dies. I just like the way he uses the understanding the origins of our speech. Is it from our sinful human nature, which is inspired by Satan, or is it based on the Holy Spirit? So gossip and slander, angry, hateful, lying, manipulative or deceptive words are here described as being set on fire by hell. And it's a good analogy. Why? Well, what does fire do? It destroys. It burns. It hurts. Proverbs 26, 18-19 describes a person who doesn't understand the destructive power of their words. It says, Just as damaging as a madman shooting a deadly weapon is someone who lies to a friend and then says, 
I was only joking. Think about a school shooting, you know. You're shooting around and, oh, I was only mucking around. No, you weren't mucking around. You just killed someone. Verse 6. See how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. You know, the tongue, our words can light fires, you know. You can have a dorm full of guys or full of girls and one person comes in with with their fire, you know, the fire of hell on their tongue, so to speak, and suddenly there's fires everywhere. There's fights and arguments and, you know, it's really quite incredible how that can happen. It can happen in families too. You know, everyone's going well and suddenly someone's controlled by the sinful nature, their tongue's on fire from the fires of hell and suddenly all these fights break out and you go, why did that happen? Well, now we know. David Guzik says, The fire of the tongue has been used to burn many. Children are told sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. But that child's rhyme isn't really true. The bitter pain of a word spoken against us can hurt us for a lifetime, long after a broken bone has healed. And that's why I titled today's sermon, Sticks and Stones Will Break My Bones, But Your Words Will Kill Me. Now, James 3, verses 7 and 8. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. And John Corson puts it this way. Here's the problem. In our own energy, we cannot tame our tongues. We need the Lord. And that's what we've been talking about again and again. Who's controlling us? By ourselves, we cannot control our tongues. Why? Because our sinful nature is set on fire by hell itself. That's a picture that James is giving us. And now verses 9 to 12 in James 3. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Well, of course not. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Well, no. Thus, or therefore, No spring yields both salt water and fresh. So, with it, we praise God and with it, we curse our fellow man. So, I'm just going to read a few more Proverbs. Proverbs is very good when it talks about how we speak and our words and the effect of our words. So, I just want to get some practical applications for how our words can be used for good and how they can be used for evil. Proverbs 10, 18 through 20, it says, Hiding hatred makes you a liar. That's important, isn't it? Hiding hatred makes you a liar. Be honest. If you've got a grudge against someone, or something's happened in your relationship with that person, you've got to be honest about it. You've got to talk to them about it. Hiding hatred makes you a liar. Slandering others makes you a fool. Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. The words of the godly are like sterling silver. So 
the words of the godly are valuable. That's what that means. Valuable. Precious. Something to be kept. The heart of a fool is worthless. That's the opposite. That's the contrast there. The words of the godly encourage many. So that's what we can do with our words. Encourage many. And people need encouragement. But fools are destroyed by the lack of common sense. And now Proverbs 12 and a few verses from Proverbs 12, verses 6, 13, 14, and 25 says, The words of the wicked are like a murderous ambush. Wow. Walking down the street and someone jumps up and, you know, smashes you and steals your wallet. But the words of the godly save lives. They're like the lifeguard rescuing you from the rip at the ocean, you know. So, see the difference? The wicked are trapped by their own words, but the godly escape such trouble. Wise words bring many benefits, and hard work brings rewards. So our words can cause us to not get into trouble, and we can actually escape trouble. Verse 25 is really important. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. But a good word makes it glad. Say, what is the solution to depression? Or one part of it is a good word makes it glad. And we have the word of God. We have the Bible. Share the word of God, the promises of God, with those people who are feeling down. Proverbs 16.24 Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. So again, our words can be nourishing, they can bring sweetness, and they can make our literally health to the bones. You know, our physical health is linked to our mental health. That's why it says sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. So this is not all bad. Our tongue is not completely evil if it's being used by God. We can be very destructive in what we say, but we can also be really beneficial in the way we can, when we're controlled by the Spirit of God, we can encourage others, we can save lives, we can escape trouble, we can speak wisdom, we can resolve depression and anxiety, and we can bring sweetness to the bones and health to the soul. So, Again, I just want to reinforce that our words are very powerful. Now, there's a false doctrine. It's called the Word of Faith Movement, or name it and claim it, blab and grab. (laughs) Basically, they say that we're in the image of God. God can create my speaking, so can we. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not quite true. Why not? The reason is that we are not God. God creates by speaking. But we are not God. We are in the likeness of God, but we are not God. We don't have that same power. So people use that because they want to get what they want. They use it as a way of creating their own reality. You know, the fast car and the big house and the the big bank account, all that kind of stuff, and the good health. Just name it and claim it. But that's not how it works. However, it doesn't mean that our words don't have any power. 
when the Holy Spirit is in control of our tongue, we can have an incredibly powerful effect on people. I mean, think of the countless number of lives that have been saved for eternity through the sharing of the gospel. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So when the Spirit is using us, we literally save lives for eternity. Isaiah 52.7 How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace and brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And another way our words can help and encourage is when people are struggling in sin. We can show them the truth of the word and through the power of the Spirit we can overcome our sinful nature and be free from habitual sin. And John eight thirty one to 36, selected verses, and then it says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus answered them, verse 34, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And that's all a part of discipleship, where a baby Christian, a person who knows God, but not in a very deep way, they mature into a young man. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. They mature into a young man, and the definition of a young man is someone who has overcome sin through the Word of God abiding in him. And so God has chosen us sinful human beings to speak through us to reconcile the world to himself. And that's 1 Corinthians 5, 18 to 21. So when we are controlled by the Holy Spirit, it's obvious and we cannot take any credit for it. Like it's not us who's saving anyone, but God is using us to be his mouth, basically. So it's a real privilege. Now verses 10 and 12 can be quite difficult. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. This can be quite condemning because we think, oh, oh, God can't use me. I just said something nasty to that person. You know, where am I at? What's wrong with me? Now, we all make mistakes and we've covered before that we know that nobody is going to be sinless in this life, which means... There will always be times when we will use our words for evil. But this is not talking about coming to that place where we have perfect control of our tongue. That's not going to happen because, as I said, we've already discussed that no one is going to be sinless in this life. So, rather, these verses, I believe, are referring to patterns in our speech and conduct. Okay, It's not becoming perfect in our speech, but patterns. Now, let me explain what that means. Imagine that I, you know, speak Christian words and encouraging words on Sunday, but then you go and visit me at my workplace and I'm swearing and I'm telling rude jokes and, you know, all that kind of thing. And you go, hang on a second, that's really different. That's not right. That's not consistent. That's weird. 
you know, who am I? Am I Mr. Christian or am I Mr. Worldly? And that's exactly what I think this verse is talking about. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be sowed. Thus no spring yields both salt, water and fresh. Now, what's the answer to this? Well, basically, if that's me, then I'm a hypocrite. Talking one way on Sunday and using a different vocabulary and different attitude during the week with my workmates, which is pretty common in some occupations, is being a hypocrite. If that was me, I'd have to be asking myself, is that the real me? Which one is the real me? Jesus taught, as we read last week, out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks, Luke 6.45. So if I'm telling dirty jokes and swearing a lot during the week, but then clean up my mouth for Sunday, what am I doing? I'm deceiving myself. Because out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And the same applies to those who speak kindly to one group of people, but then use cruel or manipulative words with their family. You know, there's a lot of people who can be nice outside of their family, but then not be very nice with their family. So there's two ways that we can really know who we are. And those two ways are these things here. We know who we are by how we act and how we think when others aren't around. And we know who we are when we're around our families. You can fake it at church or on the sports team or at work, but your family will always see right through you. None of mine does. So if you want to know who you really are, just ask your family or a close friend. Am I a salty or bitter spring, poisoning those around me? Or am I a fresh spring, bringing life, love and joy to those around me? Overall, okay? Not all the time, but overall. Is my life characterized overall by usually, generally, being a good influence, being filled, led, guided by the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit? Or, overall, am I being controlled by my sinful nature and, generally speaking, causing pain and fights and trouble wherever I go? So, that's the two choices, salty or fresh. Salty meaning bitter and fresh meaning useful. Now, we move on to the last half, verses 13 to 18. And this is heavenly versus demonic wisdom. So verse 13, who is wise? A teacher. That's what the word wise means. It means the teacher. It's going back to this whole thing about talking about those who would be a Bible teacher in the church. And this is the second part of chapter 3. It's talking about now how they should live. What are the expectations of how someone in authority in the church should live? Now, James has already talked about how they should talk and speak. So, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of that means humility of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, 
Do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So I've just got a quote from a guy called Burdick. It says, James addresses the person who is wise and understanding. The word sophos, meaning wise, or the word wise in the scripture here, is a technical term among the Jews, or was a technical term among the Jews for the teacher, the scribe, the rabbi. It appears that the author is still speaking to those who would be teachers. Compare James chapter 3 verse 1. Here it is not what they say that he is concerned with, but rather how they live. Okay, so this is all connected. So verse 15, it says, This wisdom does not descend from above. So this wisdom that James is talking to now is not really wisdom at all. It's foolishness. The Bible describes it as being foolishness. But it is the wisdom claimed by the would-be teachers of James 3.14 whose lives contradict their claims. And such wisdom evaluates everything by worldly standards and makes personal gain life's highest goal. And that was from a guy called Burdick. So the worldly wisdom is the what's-in-it-for-me type thinking. And it's described using three words, earthly, sensual, and demonic. So let's just go through those three words. Earthly. What does it mean to be earthly? Well, having only this life in view. What can I get now? How can I enjoy myself now? Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I die, type thing. It's the exact opposite of Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, If you have been raised with Christ, then seek those things which are above. Sensual. What does it mean by sensual? Well, like animals, just looking for the instant gratification of their passions and physical desires. That's what animals do. They're hungry, they eat. They smell the opposite sex and they want to mate, you know, all that kind of thing. And demonic. Inspired by demons. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 2. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So, in that way, those who are not controlled by the Holy Spirit are demonic. So, again, we can apply this to everybody, because obviously it's God's will that we live wisely in a way that glorifies God, not just those in authority in the church. And wisdom. James gave this invitation, this awesome invitation, right at the start of the book. James chapter 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So the application here in James is to those who want to teach the Bible in the church, have authority in the church. But, we can apply it to ourselves whether or not you're in authority in the church because we all should be living like this. We all should be living a wise and humble life. So what does godly wisdom look like? And 
what you're going to see is that this is very similar to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. So what is the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. I think that's nine. So keep that in the back of your mind and let's go through. I could call it James's fruit of the Spirit in these verses. So in verse 13, we have good conduct, which means be honest or trustworthy. Meek or humble in verse 13. Pure and holy, which means no sinful attitude or motive in verse 17. Peaceable, and that includes being a peacemaker and to be free from worry, verse 17 and 18. Gentle means to be merciful and kind, verse 17. Willing to yield or submit to others is the opposite of being stubborn and obstinate, that's verse 17. Full of mercy means I am a forgiving person, that's verse 17. Produces good fruit or results. Our lives are a blessing to others and that's the evidence of godly wisdom. Verse 17, again you can't say you're wise if you're not living it. It's like, show me your faith. Well, I'll show you my faith by my works, yeah? Without partiality, loving everyone the same. Without hypocrisy, we don't pretend to be someone we are not. They're both in verse 17 there. Produces the fruit of righteousness. Now, this is in verse 18, and there's a commentator called Paul who says, either the fruit we bring forth, which is righteousness itself, and the references there are Luke 3, 8, 9, Romans 6, 22, Philippians 1, 11, or the fruit we reap, which is the reward of righteousness, eternal life. So there's two ways you can look at the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of a righteous life, and it could be the reward, the crown of righteousness, the result of our living a righteous life. So basically, what do we learn here? What can we get from this? The foolish person is the one who is controlled by their sinful nature or human nature, and they produce all these earthly, sensual, and demonic, or they live in an earthly, sensual, and demonic way. But those who are controlled by the Spirit live in a way that pleases God, as we just read, all those different attributes. So we can't make ourselves wise. So remember that, we cannot make ourselves wise. Only God can make us wise. It is a part of the work of sanctification that God does in us. Philippians 1.6. What does that say again? Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So wisdom is not about how smart you are, but rather how godly you are. So this is a misconception sometimes that we have. That person's really smart, that person's really wise. No, the two don't always go together. Okay, so wisdom is not about how smart you are, but rather how godly you are. Wisdom is a character trait. It's not a measure of intelligence. We grow in wisdom as we grow to be more like God. So the application here is we are either growing more foolish or more wise every day. How? Well, the fact is that we become like who we spend time with. If we spend time with the wise, we'll become wise. So who are the wise? Well, obviously the wisest one is the Lord himself. 
But if we spend time with the Lord, we will become like the Lord. We'll be transformed into his image. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So, what are we doing? We're beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We are looking carefully. Where do we find out about God? Well, it's in the Word of God. We're looking carefully into the Word of God, asking the Spirit to give us wisdom and guidance. And as we do that, we are spending time in His presence and He transforms us into His image, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Remember, He's making us perfect. He's transforming us. Now, there's another way that we can become wise, and that is by choosing our friends carefully. Choose who you're going to spend time with. Because those who we fellowship with, we will become like those people. Someone said, I didn't write it down, but someone said, you will become like the five people you spend the most time with. That's what someone said. You will become like the five people you spend the most time with. And Paul has this idea when he says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. So Paul is hanging around Christ. He's spending time in the presence of God and he's becoming like Christ. So he says to those around him, spend time with me and imitate me. Now, would we be confident to say that to those around us? Imitate me as I imitate Christ? We should. And don't get down on yourself and say, well, I make mistakes. Well, so did Paul. What do you do when you make a mistake? You repent. You confess and you repent, yeah? And so when Paul made a mistake, he confessed and repented in humility. And so when others around him made mistakes, what would they do? They'd copy Paul and they'd confess and repent in humility, yeah? Get back on track. There's other verses that talk about the effect of who we listen to and who we spend time with. Psalm 1, 1 to 3 says, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers. There's that progression of following the advice, standing with them, and then joining in. Verse 2, But they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season, and leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. It's a beautiful picture. If you're delighting in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night, you will be like a tree planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. So, if you put your roots down into the Word of God, spend time with God, guess what will happen? The fruit will grow. Do you produce the fruit? Of course not. It just happens. It's not a work. It's a fruit. Proverbs 13 verse 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companions of fools will be destroyed. And you've probably heard lots of people say, oh, I hang out with the wrong crowd. I made some bad choices and I end up in prison or something like that. And I started back on drugs. So I hang out with those old guys again. It's like them old friends. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companions of fools will be destroyed. Proverbs 16.29, a violent man entices 
his neighbour and leads him in a way that is not good. Now, this is a tricky one for the church, generally speaking. Something that's not listened to or not given much voice in the church. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-11. Paul speaking. When I wrote to you before, in the context of church discipline, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or who are greedy or cheap people or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that because that's how worldly people live. Normal for them. I mean that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. So, talking about fellowship, who do you fellowship? This is a guide for you. If you're associating with someone who calls themselves a believer but they're living a sinful lifestyle, guess what? It will rub off on you. It will influence you. And so you have to say no. And the verses just prior to this, in verse 6, it says, and it gives us the reason. Paul gives this picture of leaven spreading through the dough as it rises and causes the whole dough or the whole loaf of bread to rise. And so the sinning person will influence the person to do the same kind of things that they are doing. So be careful who you fellowship with. Even if they call themselves a Christian, look at the way they live. Now, conclusion. Remember where true wisdom begins. It's the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9 verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. As we spend time with Him, we will become wise. Now someone said if we fear or reverence God, then we won't need to fear anything or anyone else. Because the fear of man is a snare. So one of the things I want to focus on just as we finish is that one of the defining characteristics of godly wisdom is humility. Remember in James 3.13 it says, in the meekness of wisdom. So what does it mean to be wise? It means to be humble, meek. Can I do that myself? Can I go around boasting that I'm so humble? <laughs> Doesn't work, does it? Okay. This is a change that only God can do. And I want to read just Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. This shows us what it means, what it is like to be wise, to be humble. So is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another. Can you see already the theme in this? Agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. What's that the opposite of? Well, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Instead, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, 
he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. So I just read that to demonstrate what it means to be wise. Christ was demonstrating wisdom as he lived his life in a humble and meek way. What did Christ's only autobiographical statement say? Come to me for I am meek and lowly in heart. Yeah, that's the only thing he said about himself, about his character. The only time he spoke about his character, he said, I am meek and humble in heart. And I'll tell you, if we can grasp that, if we can become just a little bit like him, well, I think we already are because we really do enjoy beautiful fellowship here, but it can just get better and better and better the more humble we get. So, going to finish with some more verses from Philippians 2. And these clearly spell out God's responsibility and our responsibility. It's not a one-way street, as you might say. It's going to require some hard work, some dedication, and discipline on our part to maintain and walk a relationship with God. Why? Because God will never force us to love him. We are under the law of liberty. That means we are free to obey or free to disobey. You can see James 1.25 and 2.12. So Philippians 2, 12 to 15, they sum up everything we've done in the last three weeks. And I want you to notice that God always provides the resources before he asks us to do anything. So what has he given us? Well, he's given us the Holy Spirit to live inside us, who then gives us the desire and the power and ability to obey him. And only then, Does he ask us to do what is humanly impossible to do, to reflect his glory, his wisdom, and character through our words and deeds as we live in this sinful world in a sinful body? So Philippians 2, 12-15, it says, Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. (sighs) You go, great, I've got to work hard. (laughs) Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. But look at verse 13. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. So God is asking us to work hard, but not on our own strength, on his strength, by his power, by his ability that he's given us. And then it continues, do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Again, this is impossible without the Holy Spirit living inside of us. So what is my responsibility? I need to show the results of my salvation. I can't save myself, but once I am saved, I have the choice to obey or disobey. Now, think about this. God does everything short of forcing me to obey Him. The only thing more that He could do to get me to obey is to force me to and then it wouldn't be out of love he gives me the desire to obey him and to love him he gives me 
the power to obey and love him. (laughs) And so my choice is very, very simple. Will I use the desires and power of the spirit that God has given me to put to death my sinful nature and walk in the spirit instead? Will I, by the desires and power that God has already given me, choose to be disciplined and prioritize my relationship with God over everything else, choosing to spend time in the word, in prayer, and in fellowship with other believers? Will I be willing to say no to sin and yes to God, living a life of humble repentance? Now, if the answer to these questions is yes, then verses 14 and 15 will automatically happen. Because then it is God who is living his life through me, and not me having to try hard to be godly. The fruit will come automatically. It's really simple and it's really beautiful. I just need to choose to let the Spirit control my life, to continue to be filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, so God can live his life through me. And then I won't fulfill or obey the desires of my sinful nature. So the main thing I want you to remember is when it says, can a spring produce salty water and fresh? The answer is no. But we're not ever going to be perfect and we're always going to make mistakes. But what characterizes our life? Are we usually, generally, most of the time controlled by our sinful nature? Or have we submitted ourselves and are we usually, most of the time, generally controlled by the Holy Spirit? And are we consistent in that? Father, help us to continue our walk with you. Help us to continue to grow by using the power that you have given us, by following the desires that you have given us, and becoming wise like you are. And Lord, that wisdom is just awesome. It causes us to have good conduct. It causes us to be humble. It causes us to be pure and holy. It causes us to be peaceable and gentle and willing to yield and full of mercy. All those things and the fruit of righteousness, Father, we just pray, Lord, that we will just submit to you as we sang that song earlier. Help us to surrender all to you because. We have a really high bar set here. And Lord, if we try and accomplish these things ourselves, we cannot. So please help us not to try hard, but to trust more. And as we grow in our love for you, we just want to obey you more. So help us to be in your word, Lord, in your presence. And your spirit will transform us to become more and more like you. So we just thank you for your awesome promises. And the fact that you will never leave us or forsake us. And you'll always be with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.